You're listening to Talking Threat Intelligence, a podcast dedicated to uncovering the new challenges of today's threat landscape. Each episode, we connect with some of the world's leading practitioners to share stories from the front lines of corporate security. And now, on to the show. Hey, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of Talking Threat Intelligence, sponsored by LifeRaft. I'm your host, Robert Value. And my guest today is Nick Jacento, Executive Vice President at Red5 Security. Nick, thanks for joining me today. It's a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Looking forward to it. All right. Now, Nick, last time we chatted, you said something I thought was really, really interesting. You said that OSINT analysts need to spend more time learning about the blockchain because it can be a really powerful tool for analysis for your clients. And I just thought that was super interesting. Can you tell me a bit more about that? Yeah, absolutely. I think that blockchain is one of those areas in cryptocurrency, you can add that together with it, where some people know a lot about it at this point. They got into it early and they've educated themselves, but I think most people still kind of feel like it's this nebulous sort of kind of space where people who, who want to be risk takers, they'll throw their money in this and you know, high risk, high reward. But that's about as much as they know about it. They don't really spend a lot of time understanding the power of uh, of all the data that exists in the blockchain as an open source investigative tool. And uh, I think that's an area considering finance and fraud is increasing exponentially in this space. And more and more of our, our own companies or clients, customers, friends uh, are going to be potentially subjected to, to theft or fraud on this space. And we need to know more about it. Like you said, when you're thinking about what's in the media, a lot of the crypto and the blockchain thing, it's this speculative investment. And it's been debatable about what the you know normal applications are. But one group that has definitely embraced it has been you know, cyber criminals and any other criminal groups that have, have definitely exploited it right now. I was picking up something from CNBC. I think that there was 14 billion in cryptocurrency that was that was taken by scammers in 2021. And, and that was like up 79% from the previous year. So I think, I think you know, bad actors out there, they're always looking for the next thing. I always found, you know, investigating bad guys was very much a cat and mouse kind of game. It's, it's a different tactic for them to take, but I think they feel a lot of safety in the anonymity of, or the perceived anonymity of blockchain. And I think they gravitate to that because they see it as low risk, but potentially high reward. Right. So let's take this, Right, right from the beginning, maybe for people that like, like you said, there seems to be people that are experts in this or people that haven't taken the time to learn much about it at all. So let's start right at the very beginning. Um, what do you mean exactly by the blockchain? Yeah, so, it, you know, the original blockchain was, uh, was Bitcoin. It's been around for quite a while. I think most people wish they would have learned about it uh, a lot sooner than when they actually did. <laughs> Definitely. Uh, yep, yep. Uh, you're, you're not alone there. And you know, the blockchain is really to, the way to describe any number of different chains that exist now. I mean, there's there's hundreds of them and probably probably more at this point um, where information is stored on um, on a distributed ledger that, that is, you know, contains certain data, certain pieces of information about a transaction or, or whatever you, you happen to be storing in little blocks of information and as they connect and transact to other entities a new block is created each time a transaction occurs 
And, and that is stored and validated across a number of servers, really as, you know, as many as your chain supports, uh, I suppose. And it's, it's done in that way so that it's decentralized and hopefully immutable, right? So it's, it's you know, the idea if, if you hack one of those servers, um, you won't be able to affect the outcome of the chain because the other chains were the, I'm sorry, the other servers will, will validate uh, the actual price or the actual transaction and whatever dissenters in that group are, are sort of counted out based on almost a democratic process, right? The majority rules. Just to yep. throw this off, you make sure I got it right. But the, from, from what I've seen, the main purpose is have this decentralized system to confirm all the transactions that are, that are out there the, using more the wisdom of the crowd so that it's, it's harder to make fraudulent transactions or, and things like that. Yeah, I think the idea is really to to create or validate truth, right? And and to do it in a way that that it's transparent, so that everyone can see it, and it you know it provides some measure of anonymity, but it, it at least the nature of the transaction is is publicly visible, and that uh, because it is validated across a number of of these nodes that. Uh, that exists to maintain the continuity of the transactions, it is exceptionally hard to hack it or crack it. If you think about thousands or tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of servers out there validating and, and confirming one chain at a time, how could you possibly mount some type of an attack that would overwhelm that? It'd be exceptionally difficult. So let's now turn this to the applications for, for OSINT analysts. And, and yeah. like you were saying, this is be, because there's so much more transparency out there with blockchains and the different cryptocurrencies that are now available and the transparency that that brings, what has that meant for you as, as an OSINT investigator and the type of challenges that you can tackle uh, with this? Yeah. I, I, so I don't know how many times, you know, I would get a call from somebody saying, hey, we've got this project, need an investigation. Uh, are you able to, you know, to, to trace finances and, you know, get bank record details? And I mean, that's always an exceptionally hard thing to do. And in most cases, it's no, I can't because I don't have access to somebody's private bank accounts, nor would I be able or, or even want to try and do that. But it's different when you're looking at the blockchain because everything is available on the chain in an open source. And so now when you're looking at financial crimes or fraud or simply just following the money as a very helpful uh, investigative tactic when you're trying to either uncover identities or, you know, piece together what happened in this situation or, or, or what have you. Now you have a medium that you can investigate. And because so much fraud, criminal activity is, you know, is perpetrated using cryptocurrency. I mean, think about ransomware payments typically are, are requested in cryptocurrency, phishing scams, even, you know, hacks of discord servers and things of that nature. Really, it's it all boils down to a, a, a crypto transfer. And so open source investigators, they have an opportunity to get into a new, a new area of open source data that can significantly enhance their ability to conduct you know, investigations. Uh, but I found that it's still relatively a new phenomenon and not a lot of folks have embraced that just yet. So what are the kind of different challenges that you can now conquer by looking at transactions on the blockchain? Yeah, so you 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 get to follow the money right from your own computer, right, right from the comfort of your own home. You know, it, it no longer requires you, you know trying to 
piece together a number of different gaps and and obviously information that's typically might only be available through a subpoena and a civil lawsuit or something where you get that information through. Obviously, law enforcement has ways to get that information, which is great. But for the most part, open source investigators aren't going to have those those tools at their disposal. So how do you participate in investigations related to financial crimes? Well, if the if the financial crime occurs on the blockchain, then you have you have the ability to to do it from soup to nuts yourself without having to bring in any outside entities and because it's all public and open source you know there are tools that exist for free to be able to look into these transactions one of the examples that that we were chatting about beforehand was the the mango exchange which i thought was was quite interesting can you can you elaborate a bit more on that one yeah, so I mean, this was back in October, and you know, there was uh, a, a, the DeFi decentralized finance exchange Mango. You know, there was a, a manipulation that occurred that you know, over a hundred million dollars was exploited. And, and Mango is a Solana DeFi exchange. Solana just being one of the types of you know protocols that has a token associated with it. And it was you know it was one actor uh, using two different accounts and essentially a short position with one account. Then using the other account to, uh, to to create a leverage position and working those two against each other to to boost the price from something like two cents to like ninety one cents, which you may think like, okay, whatever, no big deal. It's not even I mean talking a dollar, but when you've got four hundred million of those, that you know those those pennies add up. Better yeah, the return was, than what you're getting on a GIC right now. Oh no CD. question, absolutely, absolutely. So. Yeah, with that particular instance, they they use something like 10 million in in USDC, US dollar uh, coin, uh, and they took out over 116 million in Mango with minimal fees. Uh, so it was it was quite quite efficient by by these sorts of standards, and it you know it literally brought brought the whole exchange down uh, be, because of that and. And so that's, you know, just an example of, you know, there's a lot of very sophisticated actors who do know the blockchain exceptionally well. And just, I think a lot of it based on, based on education and opportunity, they're taking advantage of a lot of flaws in the system. Mm-hmm. Well, it's, it's just so new, right? I've been amazed with this crypto boom that we've just kind of gone through. There's a great, there's a great YouTuber, CoffeeZilla, who's done some incredible investigative journalism looking at how these transact, watching these transactions in the blockchain, seeing how they're all connected, and then catching connections between different influencers with pump and dump schemes and, and different things like that. Whereas, you know, if you were in in the traditional financial markets talking about pump and dumps and equities, there's no way you're as an as a private investigator of any site, you're going to be able to catch any of this stuff or talk about it, you need the SEC or, or the government to step in. But with, like you said, with the blockchain, where it's so transparent, huge new opportunity if you know how to how to read this stuff. Absolutely, the the greatest asset to an investigator is data and having access to the data. And you know, the example you talked about with traditional securities, you're not going to have the data exists. You just don't have access to it. With the blockchain, it exists and anybody can access it, and that creates a powerful tool. Now the question is. How many people right now are accessing it for these purposes? And there's just not a lot yet. Well, let's let's make that number a bit bigger then, Nick. So how sure. so if if I'm a, I'm an OSINT analyst and I, I want to start learning about how I can incorporate blockchain research into into my investigations, where where do I even get started with this? 
Well, so the internet is is the is your best and worst enemy for this because uh, obviously there's a ton of information that's going to help uh, help you get up to speed. And you know, many who are in this space are self-taught because it's just this it's it's evolved organically as new platforms and protocols are created, and people go and they learn and listen. And EtherScan is the is the the predominant tool for doing a lot of this work open source and for for minimal to no cost and. Uh, so that's that's there. I think the the flip side of the coin is that there's so much disinformation around the crypto space on the internet too. You have to be exceptionally careful where you get your information. But then if you want to, you know, cut right to the chase, can you can get Chainalysis Reactor certified? And you know, Chainalysis is the is you know one of the one of the top investigative blockchain you know companies that that's out there. Um, there's there's several others uh, in the space, but you know they have platforms. They're they're pay pay for use platforms, but they'll train you on them. And, and those certifications to use their platforms actually accelerates the ability to do investigations much much uh, faster. That that's interesting. There, obviously, with OSINT being such a new field, it's a lot of self taught work. But if you have someone yeah. that's done the work before you, um, I'll I'll include a link to that in the uh, show notes for this so that people can find those. You mentioned there that I clued into disinformation can mm-hmm. can sometimes harm your learning curve with this stuff. What what do you mean by that specifically? I, I wasn't really familiar with the term FUD until I got into the crypto space, but once I did and, and understood uh, you know, how much fear, uncertainty and doubt exists, you know, that that's that's the crypto world's term for misinformation and disinformation. And, it you know, because so many people get into the space who don't necessarily know a lot about what they're doing, they're, I don't want to say they're easily manipulated, but the the conditions are there for them to be manipulated if they don't do a lot of their own homework. A lot of the information that does exist, even when you're trying to do basic research, if you don't have the knowledge to, to sort of call BS on some of these things, when it's it's clearly someone who's pushing a certain position or, you know, their statistics just don't quite add up. Uh, it's it's really it's really hard to know when when you when that when that's the case. I, I say, you know, stick to some of the mainstream sources. For, for that information, but even then be really mindful about whether or not the articles you're reading are are paid for content, right, mm-hmm. by a sponsor, um, because you will find a lot of that that gets up on some of these online platforms, and they're all subject to sponsorships. I mean, just the same way that newspapers are, they run ads, you know, online or, or uh, you know, back in the day when we used to actually read newspapers, uh, you know, in, in our hands. The same thing applies in the crypto space, but I just find it to be a little bit more prevalent there. In terms of like the negative consequences that could come from that, do, do you mean like buying a cryptocurrency of some sort and just having your money stolen or or could that in, impact your, your OSINT analysis in some way? Like what, well, I, think what... It, I think, I mean, I suppose it could, right? You obviously, if you're going to invest in anything, you should make an informed yeah. decision and do your own homework and, yeah. and you know, everybody can choose how they want to invest their, their funds. But obviously, uh, I, I would want to be a little bit more knowledgeable on something before mm-hmm. I dump a lot of my 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 money into it. But I think the other thing is, you know, from an OSINT investigator standpoint, there's a lot of data that's out there and a lot of information. And and in the course of conducting an investigation, you really need to validate the sourcing around that. And that can be tough sometimes. And that's where I want to always pay close attention to whether or not something is sponsored content 
uh, or you know, is what I'm investigating, does the, the entity that's pushing this content out, do they have ties or associations with somebody who might have a, mm. you know, a, a position against whatever I'm looking at? Uh, the, all those factors have to be taken into account in the crypto space because there's so much money that does trade hands in the, in the background and, and, you know, entities are working together to push a particular position. Some may be working against each other. Yeah, I, I actually found it ironic in the D in the DeFi space, the whole you know concept of DeFi is you know to be able to push all of these resources to 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 people so that they can do things you know using these decentralized protocols that they wouldn't be able to do in a centralized financial system. Yet some of these DeFi protocols actually they're, they're it's very territorial and they actually battle each other and I, I just find that so ironic. You know, I think it, the point should be to create as many opportunities for people as possible. That's the spirit of what DeFi is. But I, you know, I find that 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 users are loyal to one platform, and so they'll they'll try and trash another platform. And it's uh, it's really just kind of a funny space. Yeah. Well, it's like there's there's a common ideology, but that doesn't mean there's not the, the bickering. Like just just a really wild example I'm thinking of off the top of my head is like the the communist. There'll be the communist party and the Leninist Marxist party, and you're like. To any outsider, you're like, well, that's all far, far left stuff, right? But they're sure. they're squabbling about the smallest differences or whatever. And within those communities, it's a big, serious debate. But well, uh, and there's a lot of money involved too. It's a great example. And and if you you know you spend much time at places like uh, 4chan or on some of these discords where the, this community, a lot of this community lives, hmm. you really do see how much infighting goes on between some of these groups and it it is uh it is quite comical at times actually to read some of the comments but uh but you but you have to respect and appreciate the fact that that rivalry does exist and and therefore you know be very careful about where you get your information right all right nick the second topic that i really wanted to chat with you and and one of the other interesting things that we were chatting about uh before we hit record on this episode is one of the big mistakes that you see a lot of people in the OSINT community or, or corporate security making. And you said intelligence professionals do sometimes a really bad job at presenting up to, to management. And this can reduce the impact that they have with executives or, or in the organization. Can you tell me a little bit more about that? Yeah, and I, I can talk about a little bit of my own experience in that because I came out of the government, U.S. government. Um, you know, I was there for ten years, and I get myself into the private sector. And you know, I don't think about the business case mindset that that we have to make so much uh, or, or so often in the private sector, in particular, around you know moving certain initiatives or forward, uh, or definitely asking for money is uh, is is the big one. And you know, that wasn't. That wasn't the mindset that I had to be in. I was very mission focused and mission oriented. And then I would go to my boss and say, hey, this is the mission. This is what it takes to accomplish the mission. And I didn't I didn't have an appreciation or understanding at that particular time for, for all the different factors that go into senior manager's decision around allocating funds. And so what I think has been helpful for me to think about are is first of all taking my own time to investigate and understand what are the broader priorities of the organization, and uh, how how does the how does the organization function? What are the you know who are the different players and stakeholders? Who is my boss going to have to go make a case to and justify something to? And getting ahead of those requests that you plan to make by doing that, some of that homework 
And, and, you know, I always tried to just hand it to, to my manager on a silver platter if I could, but it takes a little bit of time and, and, a, and a greater appreciation for the bigger issues at play in an organization. Yeah. I've, I've had so many great guests on this podcast talking about their experiences transitioning from something like law enforcement or, or another government agency to the private sector where they got to be like addressing the ROI of their program, which is nothing you normally don't have to think about right. otherwise. Right. Or, at, you know, how, how does this help our shareholders or, or something like that? And, and how that kind of plays into, and, and like you said, the budget, and it's just a, it's a totally different skill set that a lot of people have to take the time to develop. Yeah, definitely. And I, I, so I think back to, you know, to a couple of times in the private sector or early on in my transition to the private sector, where, you know, I think managing expectations is so important, even before you go and ask for something, because I've worked with senior leaders or even CEOs of companies that think, uh, well, I'm hiring you, you know what you're doing, you've had success in this, you're the magic bullet. And they don't understand that, you know, it takes it takes data and people to be able to run a good intelligence or security program. And rarely can companies afford both, I found. Um, you know, I think, especially in tech companies, there can be an over-reliance sometimes on a technical solution. So, you know, we'll get this tool, it'll automate, it'll scale, it'll fix everything. You know, I don't need human analysts or what, you know, what's the value of a human analyst in this process anyway? The, the goal is to, to, to get away from that. It's not true. You, you need great data so that great and talented analysts can investigate and can help you make data-driven decisions by telling you what it means. And uh, I think it, that's, those are expectations that have to be managed at the onset of, of taking a new role or looking at a, a, a position where you're expected to accomplish a mission uh, or you have objectives, but to help that, that manager understand these are the components that are required to run an efficient and effective program. Because I, you know, I remember going to a place like Tesla, for example, and you know, prior to, to my arrival and 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 the uh, you know the security leader that hired me, Tesla hadn't really had a centralized security program. They had, had a lot of you know little fiefdoms of security all over the company. And to to show up as a new program, a new centralized program, you know, and getting some headcount to do that is awesome and it's fantastic. But you need investigative tools, you need open source tools, you need you know program management tools, you need all those things. Mm. And and I just don't think that corporate leaders are necessarily prepared for that uh, unless those expectations are managed and when you want to do it up front. Well, you come, you have a great investigative background or a great security background, but then no one's teaching you, like you said, how do you ask for your boss for more money or the budget for these kind of tools? And have you dealt with issues like that where where you made a request and then it was denied because you didn't ask it in the right way or? um... That's, yeah. (laughs) Uh, and, and one prominent example comes to mind and, and it, you know, the lesson, I'll tell you the lesson up front is you need to, you need to understand what your boss wants to hear and needs to hear or how they need to hear something uh, before you just plop that proposal on their desk. And, you know, it was a lesson that I learned early uh, at my time at Tesla. Um, you know, there was for the, for the growth of the program, a couple of, of uh, different platforms that we thought would be exceptionally helpful for us to, to do what we needed to do in running security investigations. And I remember doing a lot of homework and spending a lot of time 
you know, evaluating solutions. And, you know, my, my plan was, well, I'm going to present the preferred solution. Uh, we'll get, we'll get the approval we'll get the sign off and, you know, and here we go. And so I had, I had the vendor come out to, uh, you know, to Tesla headquarters, we were going to meet uh, with, with Elon and present it to him. One of the vendors came dressed in a suit. And uh, I, I didn't know prior to that, that that's a huge turnoff for Elon, or was a huge turnoff at that time for Elon, that, you know, most people work very casually at the factory and other, you know, other Tesla facilities. And there's so many in the Silicon Valley kind of mindset where you're, you know, it's like, which black hoodie am I going to wear today? out of my 15 black hoodies and, and I brought in a vendor who was wearing a suit and the, the meeting was dead on arrival. Uh, it, it had, you know, it, and it wasn't this guy's fault. It, it obviously was my fault because I didn't, I didn't take the time to understand what will be credibility enhancing or potentially credibility killing at that time. What, and, what were you thinking at the start of the meeting when he walked into the room with the suit and you saw Elon's reaction? Well, I don't know. Can you bleep, can you bleep things out on the podcast? Cause that's, <laughs> That's what I was thinking. Um, but I, yeah, you know, yes, I thought, well, we're, we're here, we're in it. We, we just got to do the best we can to sell it. But, you know, the whole, the whole just vibe of the meeting yeah. was, was sort of off. And, it, you know, afterwards, his chief of staff comes out and he's like, hey, dude, don't bring people in suits. You know, like you got to tell these guys, especially if, they, if they've got, you know, the government sort of vibe on them or work in that space. You got to tell them they got to dress down. Cause it just uh, presents the wrong, it gives them the wrong impression. So, you know, I appreciated that tip. If I had heard it 30 minutes prior, that would have been super helpful, but uh, never made that mistake again. And it was just one of, of, of several lessons I learned on how to be a little bit more successful when approaching the boss with various initiatives. Yeah, well, definitely. And definitely in the tech space too. I'm thinking back from my experiences as well, like coming from the financial industry, which is very suit and tie and then learning to work in, in a tech startup. And then that that dress code, it just instantly, if, if you're not dressed in the same way that everyone else is, it just instantly builds this barrier between you and your, your colleagues that you're trying to, and you need to build those bridges, especially in security, where you don't really have the authority to tell people what to do necessarily. You know, you're, you're kind of, you've got to get that buy-in from everybody because, and, and if you have that extra barrier, just because you're dressed too sharp or whatever it is, yeah. and you don't fit in, boom, the relationship's off and it's preventing you from accomplishing your mission. Well, security is a huge trust business. And so, yeah, you, it's not the place where you want to look like or be the outsider. It's, it's very much a you, me, same, same kind of thing. And so I think, you know, you're absolutely right about that. The, you know, that first impression you know, he was, uh, this particular vendor was sized up within five seconds of walking through the door and it was, it was over. It was over. <laughs> so what, I never what, made that mistake again. So, so what pieces of advice would you give, you know, like, obviously like that the clothing is, is one issue and an important issue, but, but what other tips would you give for someone who's trying to, to build better relationships with management when presenting like a, you know, a vendor or a, a budget or, or something like that else that they need to get done? Yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna use my 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 favorite Ted Lassoism, uh, which I think uh, you said was was uh, originally Walt Whitman, which is be curious, not judgmental. So the, investing the time and understanding, you, you know, what information do you need, or do you would you need to feel comfortable making the decision, or feel comfortable taking to the people that you need to get approval from, uh, and maybe you don't directly ask, but you can certainly 
you know, pick things up through osmosis and just be really observant around, oh, you know, I present something this way and it goes over well. Uh, when I present it this way, it doesn't. And really kind of just, you know, you have to adapt. You have to adapt to the people that you're presenting to. Not It's not going to be the other way around. You have to think about any time uh, a manager is going to their you know, their supervisor uh, and asking for something extra, they need to be put in a position to be successful. And your proposal or whatever you're giving them, you may be like me walking into that meeting where you're, you're dead on arrival because you, you've already failed to check a very important box. And so I think that's, that's the key in my perspective is really to understand how can you make your manager be successful taking your proposal going forward where you're not in the room and be able to accomplish the goal that you've set forward. And, and that, that does come through a lot of listening, uh, asking questions, um, and, and really trying to get a bigger per perspective and picture to understand why is this likely to be successful now, or maybe, maybe now's not the right time. Timing can be very important in these things too. If my company just, you know, had a, a major riff of 20% of my workforce, is it the right time to go ask for this particular tool? Probably not. I think that broader perspective and awareness is really important. Great answer, Nick. Look, we're coming up to the top of the hour, which is all, uh, all the time I promised to steal from you today. Uh, what's the main takeaway you want listeners to remember from our conversation? I think the main takeaway is that the blockchain is out there. It's out there for, for the taking. And there's so many great tools and resources uh, to be able to become a proficient analyst. In, in that particular space, it dovetails so well with the other types of open source investigations and, and data that's available. And there's few people, few firms who can match open source information with blockchain data and do it well. And so if you don't have confidence in that, go find somebody who can do it when, when you need it. Otherwise, spend the time to go invest in learning how to do blockchain investigations because following the money is so critical. And if you can do that and match it to the skill set you have, I think that's a, it's tremendously powerful. And we need more people in the space who can do it well. And Nick, how can uh, listeners reach out and learn more about what you do? Thanks. Yeah. So red5security.com. Uh, that's red, the number five, security.com uh, is, is how you can find us. And, you know, we can, uh, we, we can consult on a number of different things, particularly around blockchain investigations, crypto investigations, and all kinds of other things too. So I'm um, happy to talk more, Jan, with anybody who's interested. I'm also on LinkedIn. You can find me there. All right. I'll be sure to include all the links in the podcast description for this episode. Uh, Nick, thanks, thanks again for being on the show. Hey, it was a pleasure. Robert, thank you so much for having me. Again, that was Nick Jacento, Executive Vice President at Red5 Security. Thanks for listening to another episode of Talking Threat Intelligence, sponsored by LifeRap. Never miss an episode by subscribing to the show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you listen to these shows. And if you'd like more insights on building a successful threat intelligence program, be sure to check out our resource page at liferafinc.com slash blog. That's liferafinc.com slash blog. And I hope you tune in next time.